The reading today is from Isaiah 6, so please do turn with me to page 691 in the Church Bible. So that's 691, Isaiah 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this to the people. Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in this land, it will again be laid to waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Well, very good morning. Let me add my welcome to that of Kevin. So it would be really helpful if you can keep that passage open as we look at it together now. Let me begin our time together and ask for God's help in prayer. Using the words of Psalm 19. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Uh, When I was a teenager many years ago now, Uh, I vividly remember Saturday mornings when my brother would come back from rugby completely caked in mud. I think he used to gauge how good the game was depending on how covered he was. Obviously, the more mud, the better. Uh, But as you might expect, he was not allowed to just come into the house, walk around and sit down on the furniture. No, The shoes and the socks had to come off at the front door. The clothes had to go in the wash and he had to go in the shower. And he was not allowed in our presence until he was nice and clean. Well, in a far 
greater way. If we want to come into God's presence, we too must be made clean. Uh, But we mustn't think that God is just house proud, that he's some cosmic hyacinth bouquet or petunia dursley. No, the Lord is a holy God. And to stand before him as an unclean sinner is the most serious and terrible of situations. Our sin condemns us to be shut out of his holy presence. And yet, the good news of the gospel is that a way has been made to make us truly clean. Isaiah picks up, Isaiah 6 picks up on this, on these themes, and we're going to follow these as we go through the chapter. Now, some of us may not have looked at Isaiah too much. Uh, we're going to have a few times in Isaiah. This is part of our, our sort of Bible journey through, um, or our journey through the Bible, I should say, hitting sort of certain landmarks as we kind of try to get to the end of the Bible in a year. Uh, Isaiah, he's one of the, the major prophets. He's, we call that because, he called him a major prophet just because there's, he's a, it's a bigger book. It's not that he's more significant or anything like that. He's just a, a larger book, along with books like uh, Jer- Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, Lamentations. Uh, it's written around 739 to 681 B.C., Uh, The man Isaiah was a prophet primarily called to prophesy to the kingdom of Judah. And he proclaimed the message of repentance from sin and hopeful expectation of God's deliverance in the future. Now the central focus of this hope is the messianic figure, the servant of the Lord. And that comes later in the book. In chapter 6 we have the commissioning of Judah, I'm sorry, of Isaiah. And we might think this should be at the start of the book. But the opening chapters present us with the condition of Judah. We see in chapter 1, verse 2, we read this. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. And if we want to know how bad it gets... Just a few verses later, God likens Israel, Judah, to Sodom and Gomorrah, two ancient cities synonymous with depravity, sin, and judgment. And chapters 2 to 5 go on to speak of God's retribution, a day when the Lord will pour out his wrath on his rebellious people. And judgment must come because God is holy. And yet, in his mercy, the Lord gives hope to the faithful. A branch will sprout forth that will sanctify and cleanse God's people. Now, Isaiah must bring that message to the people. And our focus on this commissioning is on the theme of holiness. And... um, I want us to see three things particularly about this theme of holiness. The first is this. We have a holy God. We have a holy God. Look with me from verse 1. 
Now, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. One of the most terrifying displays I've ever witnessed was a thunderstorm over the Grand Canyon. Uh, Not only did we receive a great sort of light display, visual display, with this thick black clouds and lightning streaking on the horizon, there were these mighty claps and pearls of thunder that echoed through the canyon. It was very haunting. Now, as you can imagine, it was a spectacular sight, an awful sight in many respects. Perhaps you have had your own experience of something like that. But as tremendous as a display as that would be, it is nothing compared to what Isaiah sees. For he witnesses the awesome holiness of God. Now, when we talk about holiness, we often use a phrase like being set apart. It is the idea that God is so very other from his creation. The vision certainly helps us to capture that. And again, I think there's three things particularly here we see about God's holiness. We see God's status, God's being, and God's nature. So God's status, verse 1, tells us Isaiah's vision came in the same year that King Uzziah dies. Now, Uzziah, he was one of the better kings of Judah. In many ways, he honoured God and had a lot of success and power. But Uzziah's reign didn't end well. He died a leper and a disgrace because he could not handle his success and power. Now, in contrast to this monarch, Isaiah sees the true king. He sees the Lord lifted up, highly exalted, lifted to the highest heights, enthroned in the heavens. See, this distinction between these two kings couldn't be any clearer or vast. Uzziah was a mortal king with a finite reign over a small Middle Eastern kingdom. And the Lord is the immortal king with an eternal reign over his creation. And let's be clear, Uzziah was struck with leprosy by the Lord. It was punishment for his pride. No other king in history has such power over another, nor has any other king had such grandeur. You know, all the inductions and coronations and ceremonies of every rule in history couldn't match the splendor and majesty of the Lord. God is holy because of his status. He is the true king. Uh, But God is also holy because of his being. Uh, Theologians often talk about the creator-creature distinction. Uh, This is the idea that God is completely distinct or, again, set apart from his creation. God is the uncreated creator. 
And this speaks of what we call God's aseity. Uh, this is from the Latin arse, sorry to get technical. Uh, but it basically means from self. God is self-originating, not dependent on anyone for existence. God is set apart from people like Uzziah, from Isaiah, and from us. But notice he's also holy, set apart from his angelic beings too. In this vision, the seraphim, literally the burning ones, these angels fly above the Lord. They are like living flames of pure nuclear-powered praise. Sinless but humbled before the Lord. And the fact that they cover both their hands and their feet is perhaps an acknowledgement acknowledgement that even they, even the angels, are unworthy to look upon the Lord. Now, regarding this vast distinction between God and his creatures, A.W. Tozer uh, writes this. We must not think of God as highest in an ascending order of beings starting with the single cell and going on up from the fish to the bird to the animal to man to angel to cherub to God. God is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. See, God is holy in his being, set apart from his creatures, And the words of the seraphim emphasize this when they praise God in verse 3, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is not just repetition, but emphasis. It's like when we try to underline or highlight a word. No other threefold adjective appears in all of the Old Testament. And it takes a unique uh, linguistic device to communicate meaning beyond meaning as the seraphim strain at the restriction of language to say that God alone is God. No one is like God. No angel or human or creature. But perhaps where we understand God's holiness the most is with regards to his nature. Now this concerns his purity his righteousness and goodness. By his very nature, God cannot be impure, unrighteous or evil. He is not these things, he cannot do these things, and he cannot become these things. He is what we call immutable, unchanging. He is always good, right and pure. And Isaiah comprehends this about God from upon seeing this awesome vision before him. He sees the majesty of his king. He cries out in verse 5, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. There's an interesting dynamic to God's holiness here in that someone that is so good can also be so perilous. You know, it's like the brightest light that can give life but can also blind. Or the whitest flame that can give warmth but can also burn. 
The holiness of God is infinitely good and worthy of praise, just as the angels do. But his holiness is perilous too. Isaiah cries, woe, that is the Bible's big word for doom. Before the Lord, he knows he is ruined. As are the people of Judah, the people of God. We cannot stand in such filth before the Lord's utter purity and holiness. You see, in his finite mind, Isaiah understands God's holiness and he rightly responds. Have we understood God's holiness? That it is both tremendously good but also incredibly perilous. Do we grasp his complete otherness? That he is the true king, the uncreated creator, and the one of infinite purity. He is a holy God. Lose sight of this and it will be detrimental to us. Our faith will become lethargic, sin will seem harmless and trivial, and the peril will seem all too distant. But the more we understand that God is holy, the more it will rightly affect our lives. It will shape us and direct us to live rightly before him. So let me encourage you to regularly, regularly reflect on his holiness, that it might impact your life for him. So that's the first thing we see, a holy God. Second, we have a holy messenger. Let's read again from verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now this chapter, I think, brings up a recurring question in the Bible. How can a holy God dwell with his unholy people? Now, Isaiah recognizes that neither he nor any of his people can stand in the presence of God. They'll be ruined. But in response to his cry, one of the sephirim comes and takes a live coal from the altar and presses it to his lips. He says to Isaiah in verse 7, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has taken away and your sin atoned for. So how can a holy God dwell with his unholy people? Through the sacrifice of atonement. Uh, the temple altar was the place of sacrifice. It introduced through the Levitical priesthood many hundreds of years before Isaiah's time. But here in chapter 6, he declares that both he and the people are unholy. And so it appears this sacrificial system hasn't worked Well, the Bible makes it very clear that this system was never meant to atone for sin. It was a reminder. This is what Hebrews chapter 10 says, from verse 1 to 4, this is. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all 
and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the Levitical offerings pointed to a greater sacrifice, one that is shown to us in this vision. Now here it does have the sort of guise or image of this temple sacrifice, but it is different because this is of a heavenly origin that provides full atonement. On this matter, again, theologian David Jackman writes this, the holiness of God symbolized by the altar fire is satisfied by the substitutionary sacrifice burning on the temple altar, and it is from this source alone that cleansing and atonement are provided. Now, we don't see what's being sacrificed in this vision. And there is ambiguity there, which perhaps tells us it's got a messianic push to it. Uh, The Apostle John actually reveals that it is Christ that Isaiah sees in this vision. In chapter 12, he quotes from the prophet saying, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. And so it is the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ which makes Isaiah holy. As it is for all his people, Christ's death covers all, past, present, and future. The writer of the Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And now that Isaiah has been made clean, he can qualify, or he qualifies to bring Christ's message to his people. He has become a holy messenger. And so the Lord Jesus commissions him. But what Isaiah must proclaim is a very hard message. A message that encouraged people to continue in their unbelief. Look with me from verse 9. Go and tell this people... Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. I can't imagine any church leader wanting this ministry to proclaim a word to a people you knew wouldn't respond. That's a tough gig, is it not? But God announces his justice on Israel's rebellion, but he holds back destruction but he still judges and punishes through what we might call a continuation of unbelief. Blinding eyes and hardening hearts. It's as though he has put a spiritual blindfold over them. They see, but they don't perceive. Again, the Apostle John uses this to show that the same was true of those who witnessed Jesus' ministry. Uh, We're a little past autumn now, but I I used to love playing Conkers. don't know if you did. Um, You know that Conkers have kind of tough skins, don't they? But um, kids used to cheat when you used to play Conkers by uh, trying to harden them, dipping them in vinegar, baking them or nail varnish, that kind of thing, whatever they could do to, to get an extra edge. 
that can, like a, uh, like a conquer the, the hearts, the, the spiritual hearts, is naturally hard. It's hard towards God. And so God's method to punish is to further harden the heart. It's as if he coats the heart in a sort of spiritual vinegar or varnish, per se, creating a barrier that stops the word of God getting through. So whether the ministry of Isaiah or Jesus, people did not believe because God hardened their hearts. He caused them to continue in their unbelief. And that is the the same today as well. It's true today. God is holding back final destruction. But he, the wrath of God is still on the godless and the wicked. And he does that by hardening hearts. Now God hasn't hardened everyone's heart. Every Christian has had their heart softened by him. And he has done that out of the kindness of his grace. And like Isaiah, we too have been made clean. And the Lord Jesus has commissioned us to be his holy messengers. Distinct and set apart. Proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus to the world. Now this time of year is a great in making the most of this privilege and opportunity with our many Christmas services. Kev's mentioned lots in the notices for us to kind of think about people we can invite. Keep praying for opportunities and pray that in his mercy he might soften the hearts of those we love. Well, we have a holy God. We have a holy messenger. And finally, we have a holy seed. It's our final point for us. Look with me from verse 11. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. I'm sure we can think of undesirable tasks that we've been given to do. And I expect the first thing that we ask is, how long do I have to do it? And that seems to be the logical response to anything unpleasant. And that is Isaiah's response regarding the Lord's message. As he hears what he has to present to the people, he asks, how long? For how long, Lord? But I don't expect Isaiah kind of wanted the response either from God. This ministry would last until destruction came. See, although God was at this point holding that desolation back, people's hearts were continuing to harden. Judgment would inevitably come. Judah's continuous rebellion would ultimately result in their destruction Because in his holiness, God must bring forth justice. Now, it's kind of interesting as I was looking at this, because Isaiah died before the the Babylonians conquered Judah and raised Jerusalem. So the Lord's words to Isaiah don't seem to quite match, because he dies before 
these events take place. This probably means that maybe these words don't just, aren't just for Isaiah, but perhaps for the other prophets that were there and would come. Other prophets like Jeremiah, who was there and witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. He gave a message like this right to the end. But as necessary as God's judgment was, it didn't get to the heart of the problem of sin. Verse 13 tells us that a contingent remained in Judah, but it is destined to face destruction again. This could well be in reference to those who returned from exile from Babylon. That survived, but they would still face God's judgment because they continued in their rebellion. And so God was not finished in his judgment on them. Now, despite this terrible prospect for God's people, there's still hope. And this comes in the form of a holy seed. The second half of verse 13 says, But as the tenebrinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Uh, many of us might be avid gardeners. I'm, I'm not one. But I, I imagine there is a level of hope when you plant a seed or seeds. Hope for growth, hope for what it might become, and hope for what it might produce. And in a similar way, Isaiah speaks of hope for God's people. Despite Judah being cut down like a tree, a holy seed will spring from its stump, from its roots. There is hope for the future. Now, I think in the immediate context of the book, this is probably referring to a faithful remnant that survived the exile. And these faithful people were hoping for a day when they would be made holy, uh, most likely seeing it in the form of a person, knowing from what the, the scripture said about this suffering servant, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. But of course, as we go down, we know where this is ultimately fulfilled. It is fulfilled in one man, in the man Jesus Christ. And it's him who gives hope that one day people will be made holy. Jesus Christ is this holy seed. And it is through his death and resurrection, all who trust in him will be made holy. And we're going to have an opportunity in a moment to reflect on that, particularly as we remember the cost it took for him to make us clean. But we are clean. We are holy because of the Lord Jesus. And as a result, we need not fear his judgment. We need not face his judgment. Or we will not face his judgment. And we can look forward to his return. Now when we look out to the world, Kevin said this at the beginning, but we, we, we have a dark world. It's shrouded in chaos Death, depravity, we see destruction, war, wickedness. There are hard hearts and unbelief. 
You know, such things can really get us down, can't they? We feel despondent, and we can feel mournful. Maybe they're getting us down right now. I I felt that yesterday, actually, um, when last night a news headline pinged on my phone regarding a murder investigation of a baby in Ipswich. You might have seen that as well. See, we read these things, uh, but Isaiah... You know, he, he questioned, how long, O oh Lord? And maybe we think the same. How long, Lord? But friends, wonderfully, there is hope. As Christians, we see more clearly the Holy Seed. And because of all he's done, we can hope that Jesus, we can hope in Jesus, because there is a day, there is a day when these terrible things will come to an end and be utterly gone. Now, as we wait for that day, we do the work of Christ. We do the work he has commissioned us to do. We proclaim the message of hope to the world, the good news of the Holy Seed. And in their hard hearts, there will be hard hearts, and many will refuse but the grace of God, by the grace of God, many will also believe. And we can rejoice with them and look forward to that day when we come into God's holy presence forever. Let me close this in prayer. Fall on your knees. Father God, we pray that we would indeed have the same response as Isaiah did as he looked on the Lord Jesus. Help us to just see how awesome you are in your holiness. And we thank you so much, Lord, for the Lord Jesus, that through him we can be made holy. Help us to reach others with the good news of the gospel, the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, that holy seed, that others too may come to know that warmth and light. They may come to know that they too can be made holy, that there is a day when all things that are evil in this world will be gone. And we look forward to that day. Help us, Lord, to reflect on these things and live rightly, we pray. Amen.